You're listening to the New Hope Church podcast. To learn more about what we're doing on the south side of Indianapolis, you can check us out online at becomehope.com. If you like what you're hearing here, be sure you check out one of our companion podcasts. We have a daily devotional podcast called Let's Find Out Together, as well as an apologetics podcast called Salty Saints. Let's listen in as today's talk comes from Randy Spade. Good morning and welcome to New Hope. Thank you so much for being here. My name is Randy. I'm one of the pastors here at New Hope. And today we begin a new series. We're going to take a look at the book of Esther from the Old Testament, the book of Esther. Very, very interesting book. It takes place after many Jews have returned to Palestine. So Ezra and Nehemiah, that's in the past. They are now back in Palestine. But there's still a large Jewish community in Babylon. It's an interesting book. It does not use or even mention the name of God. How about that? A book in the Bible that doesn't even talk about God at all. The purpose of the book of Esther is to explain why the Jews now celebrate a festival during the year that is not actually part of the book of Leviticus. It's a new festival called Purim. Purim is celebrated in March, and in the Jewish community they will do four things. They will exchange food, they will do two acts of charity, they will have a big banquet, and they'll read the book of Esther. Now, the book of Esther starts with the story of a huge banquet that's put on by a king of Babylon called Ahasuerus. The book of Esther calls him Xerxes. We also know him as Artaxerxes. Think the movie 300, the bad guy in the movie 300. Not his, I mean, there was a battle of of uh, Thermopolis and all of that did take place, but it wasn't like the movie 300 says it was. Uh, but that's the guy. So we read here in the book of Esther. When it was all over, the king gave a banquet for all the people from the greatest to the least who were in the fortress of Susa. The banquet, the party, lasted for seven days. It was held in the courtyard of the palace guard. And by edict of the king, no limits were placed on drinking. It was a seven-day party with an open bar. And by the seventh day, they were really, really drunk. Now, that's where the story gets interesting. On the last day, the king makes an audacious request of his queen, Vashti. Says to the queen, when he was in high spirits, yeah, right. <laughs> he told his servants to bring Queen Vashti to him with the royal crown on her head. 
Now, Jewish commentators, we don't know if it was this way or not, but Jewish commentators believe that the order was that she wear only the crown. You get what I'm saying? Really drunk. I mean, the book of Esther is like this. Uh, it, it is not a book that we should go out and say, oh yeah, I want to do that. <laughs> we should go out and say, heaven help us. We do not want to do that. Well, she refused. So he divorced her on the spot. And he begins to search for a new queen. He goes out and uh, he holds literally a beauty contest. And in that beauty contest, he meets a young Jewish woman named Hadassah. Hadassah hid her lineage from King Artaxerxes. He did not know that she was Jewish. Artaxerxes sees her, likes her, marries her. She becomes his wife, part of his harem, one of many other wives that he had. And he names her Esther. Now the book of Esther moves on. It tells us that Esther so pleased the king that of all of his wives, all the members of his harem, he looks at Esther and he says, I want you to be the queen. And so he puts a crown on her head and she becomes the queen of Babylon. Now it's interesting. He gives her a new name. That new name is Esther. It sounds a lot like the Babylonian goddess Ishtar. It's a different word. But sometimes this happens. Names that sound like other things are given. Also, we see that Esther's uncle, who raised her up, basically became her foster parent, is named Mordecai. That sounds a lot like the Babylonian god Marduk. In fact, in extra-biblical uh, writings around this time from the nation of Babylon, it mentions a great ruler in Babylon, the grand vizier of King Artaxerxes, called Marduka. Could that be Mordecai? It's possible. Let's move on. The story gets really interesting. We have what appears at first glance to be a random factoid. Mordecai overhears two guards, two palace guards, who are planning to kill King Artaxerxes. Esther 2, verse uh, 22. Mordecai heard about the plot. He gave the information to Queen Esther. Esther tells Artaxerxes, and the plot is foiled. Mordecai saves the day. Then we get random factoid number two, which at first glance just looked like somebody rambling, but as the story develops, we look back and say, 
Oh, now I get it. Now I know why they mention that. We're introduced to this man named Haman. He is Artaxerxes' vizier. He is uh, the number two in power. He's called an Agagite. That possibly means that he was actually from Palestine, from the Agagites that lived in Palestine, historically enemies of the Jews. He was in charge of the daily operation of the kingdom. Now, he wants people to bow down to him. So we get here in Esther 3. All the king's officials would bow down before Haman to show him respect whenever he passed by. That's what the king had commanded. But Mordecai refused to bow down or show him respect. Kind of reminds you of what happens in the book of Daniel when Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, refused to bow down before the statue of the king. Well, here, Mordecai refuses to bow down before Haman. And Haman gets mad. He is enraged, Scripture says. He looks at Mordecai, and every time he goes by Mordecai, and everybody else is bowing down, and Mordecai is just standing there. It makes him matter and matter until finally he says, I've had it. I'm going to take care of this guy. In fact, I've noticed that anywhere I go, the Jews as a race, will not bow down before me. So he makes plans to have them exterminated. He plans a genocide, and he takes a pair of dice and he rolls the dice to figure out what day he will kill all the Jews. And the day comes up March 7th. That's about 11 months from when he rolls the dice. So now, Esther 3, 5, he goes to the king and he says, uh, yeah, next one there. There we go. There's a certain race of people scattered throughout all the provinces of your empire who keep themselves separate from every young else. Their laws are different from any of the other people. They refuse to obey the laws of the king. So he tells the king, We'll get rid of them. There's about 75,000 of them. We'll just kill them all. He tells the king, don't worry. It won't cost you a thing. I will pay for all of it. The king accepts the plan. But that's not enough for Haman. He looks at Mordecai and he says, he's the one that started it all. He deserves a special punishment. So he takes a pole that's 75 feet tall and he sharpens the top of it and his plan is to impale Mordecai on that 75 foot pole. Now remember, Queen Esther has kept her lineage secret. The king does not know that she is Jewish. Well, Mordecai hears about the plan. 
He goes into mourning. He dresses himself in sackcloth. Esther hears about it, sends him clothes. He says, take him back. I'm, I'm wearing what I'm wearing. And he continues to mourn. So Esther goes to him and he says, why are you mourning? And Mordecai tells her, because on March 7th next year, Haman is going to kill all of the Jews. Esther has kept her lineage hidden from King Artaxerxes. Now she has a dilemma. The king doesn't know that she is Jewish. She's safe. But her people, what about her people? What about her friends, her family? They're in danger. This starts in Esther A. Self-questioning. What should I do? Should I tell the king? But you know what? There are two reasons why she shouldn't tell the king. First of all, she's just been made queen. Isn't her own comfort more important than the possible destruction of the Jewish race? You know, God's God. He's going to deliver them. Isn't it better if she just keeps her lineage a secret? And secondly, she's not a politician. This is somebody else's job. Shouldn't Mordecai be the one to talk to the king? I mean, he has access to the king. Well, Mordecai comes to Esther and he says, you know what? God may deliver the Jewish nation in another way. But he says this, Esther, who knows if perhaps you are made queen for just such a time as this. Esther hears her uncle and she says, you're right. She decides to act. So she goes to the king and scripture is very clear. If you go to the king uninvited, he has the right to kill you. She goes to the king and the king holds out his scepter to her. That's the indication that he wants her to speak. So she comes forward. The king says, what do you want? You've put your life at risk. What is it that you're looking for? And she says, I want to hold a private party for you. I want to throw you a banquet. This banquet will just have three invited guests, myself, you, and let's invite Haman too. Now when Haman hears this, he's elated. He's thinking, wow, a private dinner party with the king and the queen. Artaxerxes hears this and he's perplexed. He thinks, you know what? I'll bet that she just didn't want to throw me a party. There's something else. So they go to the party. And at the end of the party, Artaxerxes says, okay, so what do you want? And Esther says, 
Come tomorrow night. Let's have another party. Just me and you and Haman. So they go to the second banquet. And in that second banquet, Esther says, King Artaxerxes says, so what is it that you want? And Esther says, my people are going to be killed. There is a man in the kingdom who is looking to kill all of my family. And Artaxerxes is outraged. He says, who? And she points at Haman and says, him. <laughs> Whoa. Now the king is so mad that he gets up. He, he walks away because he can't handle it. He leaves the room, and when he leaves the room, Haman looks at Esther, realizes that she is Jewish, and he falls down at her feet, and he grabs her around the waist, and he begs for his life, just as King Artaxerxes comes back into the room, and he sees Haman with his arms wrapped around Esther, who is trying to push him away. And he says, you want to rape her too right in front of me? And he takes Haman out. And he has him impaled on the stick that he had planned for Mordecai. They impaled Haman on the pole that he'd set up for Mordecai. And the king's answer subsided. <laughs> but now they have to deal with the decree because, you see, Mordecai made it a law that on March the 7th of the following year, anybody could kill a Jew with no repercussions at all. Kill the Jew, take his property, it doesn't matter. Artaxerxes hands Mordecai his signet ring. And he says, Mordecai, you go write whatever law you want. It'll be okay. Here's my ring. Seal it with the ring. And it becomes law. So Mordecai reverses that law. And instead, Esther chapter 8, Mordecai left the king's presence wearing the royal robe of blue and white, the great crown of gold, an outer cloak of fine linen and purple. And the people of Susa celebrated the new degree. The Jews were filled with joy and gladness and were honored everywhere. Mordecai becomes the new vizier instead of Haman. The king gives Esther all of Haman's property. And Esther says to Mordecai, you take this. You run his household for me. Well, Mordecai still has the king's signet ring. So he makes a second law. He says, you know what? We ought to celebrate this every year. So he makes another law. At the end, he ends up composing Three letters. Esther chapter 9 says that these letters established the festival of Purim. 
an annual celebration of these days at the appointed time, decreed by both Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther. That's the festival of Purim. That's why Esther was written, to explain the presence of this feast that's not in the book of Leviticus. Later on, or earlier on in that chapter, he told them to celebrate these days with feasting and gladness by giving gifts of food to each other and presents to the poor. You notice it says presents, so two acts of charity. They were incredibly literal. This would commemorate a time when the Jews gained relief from their enemies, when their sorrows turned into gladness and their mourning into joy. So this is what the book of Esther looks like. You see this movement from the banquet. Mordecai protects the king and Haman plots against the Jews. Then you have Esther's decisions, two more banquets, and after that Haman is killed. Mordecai is exalted and we have the banquet of Purim. The book starts, ends, and in the middle has another two banquets. It revolves around parties, which is interesting, but that's not the only thing. First of all, look what happens around these banquets. You get, on the left-hand side, the negative responses. The negative responses primarily come from Haman and Artaxerxes. Six or seven times it talks about their rage. They were enraged. And they were enraged typically when they were drunk. So you get excess and rage. You get the immorality of what they're doing. The king's initial request. The murder that takes place all through the book of Esther. You get disloyalty. Mordecai's been a good person, but Haman tries to have him killed. On the right-hand side, you get Mordecai and Esther's responses. Instead of excess, you get restraint. Mordecai is never out of control, never loses his cool. He just does what needs to be done. Instead of rage, you get this calmness. The way he approaches life. Oh, he goes into mourning, but he doesn't become enraged and look to pay back violence for violence. You get morality. They don't participate in the excess of these banquets. And you get loyalty. Loyalty to God, loyalty to each other, loyalty to the Jewish people. And Mordecai is careful everything that he does, he does by the book. He obeys the laws of the land. So you get this difference between the excesses of Babylon and the morality and good character of the Jewish response. In addition, 
looking just at Mordecai, you see his faithfulness. He's careful to protect the king. And as a result, at the end of the book, he's exalted. At the end of the book, he becomes the new vizier of Babylon in charge of the daily operation of the kingdom. But then you get Haman. Haman's selfishness, his self-interest, leads to his own death. So what do we learn from Esther? You know, I'm drawn to two different lessons that we get from the book of Esther. First, do you remember Esther's thoughts? Scripture says that she puzzled about what she should do and prayed for a few days about what she should do when she realized that her people were in danger. I think that's a lot like us. We're given the opportunity to talk to somebody about Jesus. But there's danger. Maybe not the danger of death, but there's danger if we talk to someone about Jesus. There's the danger of being rejected. You know, we could be canceled. Or at least maybe ghosted. We share Jesus with somebody and they don't like the message. They might reject us simply because they don't accept our message. In terms of Esther, it seems like we might deal with this question. Isn't my own comfort more important than the danger of their eternal destiny? Can't God bring somebody else to talk to them? In fact, isn't it somebody else's job to talk to them? Isn't that what the pastors are supposed to do? You know, I'll call them up and Tell them about him. That's it. Well, that's a possibility. But you remember what Mordecai said. You remember the simple phrase that the Lord used to change Esther's mind. Maybe. Maybe. God made you their friend. For such a time as this. Sharing Jesus with them might be uncomfortable. It might be awkward. They might ask you questions that you don't have answers to. But the bottom line is that you are the person with the connection to your friend. Not the pastor. Not somebody else that you know. You're the person with the connection. And maybe, just maybe, God has made you their friend for such a time as this. Now the second thing that I learned from Esther, you look at what was going on, you look at the circumstances that surrounded Mordecai and Esther, and it was all over the place. There were a lot of things going on in their circumstances that would have depressed them. Well, 
<clears throat> if you want to live, love, and go like Jesus, focus on your character, not on your circumstances. You see, it's how you respond that is so much more important than what is actually going on. Respond well. Be the right side of the slide, not the left side. Don't give in to excess or to rage. Don't lose your self-control. Be calm. Be restrained. Be loyal. Share your faith. Focus on your character. Pray with me, would you? Lord, today as we come to you, help us. We recognize that sharing in the context that we live in today can be dangerous. Maybe not dangerous physically, but certainly emotionally. People might reject us simply because of our message. But Lord, we believe that you have given us the charge to share you with our friends. Even though it may be uncomfortable and it may be awkward. Help us, Lord, to be a friend for such a time as this. Help us, Lord, to focus on our character, not so much on the circumstances that surround us, so that we can be true representatives of who you are. We ask this, Lord, in your name. Amen. Let's so take a few minutes to respond to God's word this morning. We want to ask a couple of questions in terms of what you have been hearing from God today. There's been a lot of characters mentioned in this crazy story that uh, uh, has a lot of ins and outs uh, from Mordecai to Esther and the king and, uh, and Haman. What have you heard in this story today that really resonates as true as being from God today that He's saying, you know, as, as you look at your character and how you respond in our culture and our world today, how is God wanting you to become more like Jesus today? Let's take a couple moments as we pray and ask God what he is showing us in our lives, that he wants to become more like him in how we behave and act and think. God, we thank you for your word, for your truth. And Lord, as you shine that in our lives and show us how we can be more like you, or may we seek to obey and follow you. So as we consider that truth that God has shown us, what is an action that you can take today? Something that you can do today and tomorrow, this week, 
to be more like Jesus? How can our lives align with his word even more and more each and every day? God, there's so many things each and every day that that I know I could do better. Things that would help me to live, love, and go more like you. So God, forgive me where I fall short and give me strength and courage to live each day for you, to love others in a way that can only be characterized by you. And Lord, to be bold and to go and share my faith. Lord, we pray these things in your name today. Thanks for tuning in to the New Hope Church podcast. If you would do us a favor and like or subscribe on your favorite platform, we would really appreciate it. Also, if you happen to have any questions, feel free to reach out to us at questions at becomehope.com. Have a great week and know that we are praying for you as you seek to be Jesus in every corner of your world.